So today we're taking one more look at our mission as a church in light of glimpses of Jesus in John's gospel. One key part of our mission here at InTown is this sense that we are sent into the world to pursue gospel restoration. That's our mission statement. And uh, take a look at our logo there, and let me highlight just part of it, sort of empty out some of the color, and you can see these points of light that radiate outward, knowing Christ changes us. He draws to himself people from all over the world to belong to him and be his. And uh, these other parts of the logo emphasize that. But these points of light radiating outward from that center remind us that as Jesus draws us to himself, he sends us back out into the world. We are sent by Jesus to serve our neighbors, to serve our culture, to serve the world. But what does that look like in practice? When we turn that commitment into action, what does it look like? Let's learn together today from Jesus as he talks to a woman standing by a well in a city known then as Sychar in Samaria. Let's listen to the scripture. This morning scripture reading is selections from John chapters 4 and 17. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And from chapter 17, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment and pray together. Lord Jesus, you used the image of water as you spoke to a woman at a well. Reminds us today that our hearts are hard and dry. And we need you to 
penetrate truth, grace, mercy, reality from you to soften our hearts so that we could hear all that you have to say to us today. And that we would drink it in so deeply that it would change who we are in a deep way. Lord, we open our hearts before you. We open our ears. We wait to be changed by you through the power of your Spirit. Amen. picture for you of a man that I'll, I'll call him Father K. This is a mosaic on a, a church in the town. Well, today it's no longer called Sikar, but that's what it was called in the first century. And uh, the mosaic was built by Father K himself. Um, you'll notice on one side of this image, there's a, a building You'll notice a long gray beard on his face. And up above, you can see a, a small letter above the mosaic. It's the Greek letter omega. It means the last, the end. Because Father K believes that God has sent him to be the leader of this church and this city for the rest of his life. There's another mosaic on another part of the building. And in that picture, Father Kay has a shorter black beard because when he started his ministry there, he was a much younger man. Over that is, is the letter Alpha, the beginning. And he's saying through these two pictures, I'm, I'm here from the beginning and to the end because I believe Jesus has sent me to this place. One of the reasons he feels called to this particular place and sent there is because the church building was burned down decades ago, and so in this mosaic you notice a building that's been reconstructed and that he himself has spent years uh, not only serving people and teaching them and, and leading them to truth about Jesus, but actually making stained glass windows with his own hands and carving furniture with his own hands and painting pictures to go on the wall and making uh, candelabras and light fixtures because everything was burned to the ground. This man is in this place doing this work and he plans to be there for the rest of his life because God has sent him to that place. We hear Jesus use that same kind of language when he talks about himself in John chapter 4, verse 34, he says, you know, I, I was sent to do the work that my Father has given me. The disciples are wondering if he needs something to eat, and uh, Jesus says, I've got food that you don't know anything about. And so they're, you know, he's using a metaphor, and, and, and they're not getting it yet. Well, I wonder if somebody brought him something to eat while we were away. And he says, no, the food I'm talking about is doing the will of him who sent me, accomplishing his work. Jesus says, I am sent. And then in chapter 17, as he's praying, just before his arrest and crucifixion, Jesus says something similar about us, doesn't he? 
he says to his heavenly Father, you sent me into the world, and in the same way, I have now sent them, my disciples, into the world. And if we wonder, was he talking just about his 12 apostles, or was he talking about all of his followers? The next verse goes on to say, I'm not just praying about those who know me right now. I'm praying for those who will believe in me later. So Jesus was sent into our world to do the work that God has for him, and he has sent us into the world. But what did he send us to do? What was he sent into the world to do? Answer that question, we'd have to really look at the whole of the Bible. Rather than do that, let's take a deeper look at this one interaction Jesus has with a woman standing by a well in Samaria. We'll learn two core answers to that question. What was Jesus sent to do? What does he send us to do? So, here's a woman standing by a well in Sychar. The, the woman in this picture is Elizabeth Sablon, one of our members. Here's Father Kay again. The church that was burned down that he spent decades rebuilding was built over the well that's talked about in this scripture passage. Wells don't move. And in a part of the world where water is precious and not everybody has access to it, wells don't get forgotten. So over thousands of years, people have been coming to this well to draw water. There are a lot of places you can go in uh, the Middle East where people will say, Jesus stood here, or Jesus stood there, or Jesus did this in this very spot. And most of the time, they're lying because they want your money, and you're a tourist. But here's a place where you can say, that, that well hasn't moved. <laughs> this is that well. And um, that's where we want to start, by saying, you know, Jesus was sent to tell a woman from Samaria that she could be completely known and completely loved. So rather than starting with some grand vision for the redemption of the whole world, let's just start with a, a specific place and a specific person. Jesus was sent into the world to do a lot of things, but one of those things was to stand by this well in this place and tell a woman that she could be both completely known and completely loved. If you read the full description of this event in John chapter 4, after Jesus has this interaction with this woman, um, he, he brings up a, a point to her about water. And she misunderstands. They're standing by a well, and she thinks he's talking about literal water. And, and, and he's saying, no, I can give you water that will take away your thirst forever. And um, she says, well, hey, give me some of that, and I won't have to come to this well and carry a jug of water balanced on my head back to my house anymore. And that sounds like a great deal to me. And he says, well, go call your husband and come back, and the woman says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, I know you're telling the truth because you've had five husbands, and you're now living with a sixth man that you're not married to. 
This changes the nature of the conversation. Later on, she leaves, and she goes back into her village, and she says, come see this man who must be, at the very least, a prophet, and he may even be the Messiah, because he told me everything I ever did. So here's this woman saying, this man knows me better than anybody else in the whole world. He knows everything about me, and yet he still wants to offer me living water. I've never met anybody like this who knows me completely and loves me anyway. As she describes uh, this, this kind of scenario, and as Jesus has asked her about her life, it brings up categories of, of shame and guilt. What, what are the things that would make you think that God could never love you? What are, what are the, the episodes in your life, the patterns, the realities of who you are that maybe nobody else knows because you haven't told anybody else the full story? And you're afraid that if anybody knew the whole story, there's no way they could ever respect you again, let alone enjoy being in your presence, let alone deeply love you. Scripture talks about categories of shame and guilt that alienate us from God. And sometimes those are real things that we really have done that, that causes God to be allergic to our presence. He is a holy God. He is a holy God who, who cannot be in the presence of that which is impure. And so there are real things that we think and say and do that alienate Him from us. And then there are other things that we think wrongly would alienate him from us, right? There, there are some false feelings of guilt about things that we shouldn't feel guilty for, false feelings of shame that there's nothing to be ashamed about. For example, let's, let's, let's take this woman. She's been married to five different men, and she's living with a sixth that she's not married to. Well, perhaps some of her husbands died. There's no reason to feel any shame over losing a spouse to death. Or perhaps we don't know. We don't know the fullness of her story. Perhaps, perhaps she's kind of a seeking to fill a hole in her heart through relationships with men. Clearly, she should not be living with a man that she's not married to. That's one of the expectations around marriage and sexuality throughout Scripture. So there could be a combination of real and false guilt in her heart and life, real and false shame. But either way, Jesus has come to do everything needed to reconcile her to God and to help her understand that, yes, you can be completely known and yet completely loved. 
Someone can know everything about you, the real guilt, the false guilt, the real reasons for shame before God, and the false reasons. Someone can know all of that and still want to give you living water. And so there's this sense of amazement that you hear in this woman's voice as she's saying, instead of condemning me, this Jesus man is offering me living water. Now, at first, I thought he was offering me something he couldn't provide. And it, when you read this passage, it becomes clear at, at first that she thinks Jesus is a little confused, right? Wait a minute. In our culture, living water means water that's flowing and moving. And sir, you cannot get that kind of water out of a well. In fact, I, I don't think you know anything about what you're saying because you didn't bring a bucket you have nothing to dip water out of this well with. And even if you could dip it out, it wouldn't be living water. So thank you, Mr. Confused Man. And Jesus then gently redirects and says, no, 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 I'm talking about the kind of water that if you drank it, you would never be thirsty again. I'm talking about the kind of water that could heal that hole in your heart that you've been trying to fill with these relationships with your husbands and now with this man that's not your husband i'm talking about i'm talking about something that could satisfy your deepest longings and desires forever i'm willing to give you that even though i know everything about you jesus is saying that he has come to restore our relationship with God, to, to move us from condemnation to affirmation. And to say, well, all the things that we mean in the Christian church when we use language like salvation, forgiveness, justification, atonement, those are words that mean Jesus has come to do everything necessary to restore us to God, so that God, who knows everything about us, says to us, I love you phenomenally. I love you unbelievably. I love you with no hesitation, no reservation. I affirm everything about you because you are my child. Jesus has come to restore us to that kind of relationship. Now, you and I aren't sent into the world to do that, right? There's something unique about Jesus. He was sent to do the work that would restore us to God. He was sent to accomplish this thing. Our mission as his followers is not to go out into the world and restore people to God. Jesus has done that. Our calling is to go out and tell our neighbors good news that Jesus has done everything needed for our complete forgiveness. Jesus has done everything needed to restore our relationship to God. And when we say that, it can sound like this big intimidating thing, like I've got to find a way to, to say the perfect magic Jesus words to every person I know who's not a Christian. And, and then when I do that on my street, I got to go and do it to the next street. And then when I've gone through all the streets in the city, I got to go to the next city and all the cities, I got to go to the next state and the next country. And it gets, 
pretty overwhelming, but I want to say to you, you know, it's really as simple as standing by a well and talking to a woman. Don't, don't get lost. Don't get overwhelmed. Remember the details of Scripture. Jesus was sent to do this incredible thing to redeem the whole world, but it included something as simple as walking on a path until he got to a city, finding the well, and waiting for the woman, and talking to her. And caring about questions like, why is this person afraid of being completely known? What is it about her heart that makes her assume that if she's known, she won't be loved? Caring enough to stand in your city and listen and ask that kind of question. What are this person's deepest desires? And then we have the privilege of speaking good news and saying Jesus was sent so that we can be completely known and completely loved. That sentence has the power to change the world. Jesus was sent into the world so that we could be sent to share that good news. He did everything necessary to make that good news come true in our lives. And now, because of what he has done, we have the privilege of being able to communicate that to others. Right? Don't let it sound too complicated. Go back to that well. Jesus came to stand by a well in Samaria and talk to a woman and say to her, you can be completely known and completely loved. Well, the way Jesus did this didn't simply have an impact on that woman. It was intended to have an impact on his disciples as well. So during the initial phase of this conversation, it was just Jesus and the woman standing by the well. But then John 4 tells us that his disciples came back kind of mid-conversation. And that's when he started talking to them about food that they didn't know anything about. Jesus was sent to show his disciples that a woman from Samaria should benefit from his reign of peace. God created the world for life and peace, for everything that water symbolizes in a dry land. Life fullness, refreshment, things being the way they should be. God created the world for life and peace. Oftentimes it helps us to hear another language to, to sort of shake us out of our uh, misunderstandings. And so when we hear the Hebrew word shalom, it can help us remember that peace is something bigger than simply weapons being laid down. Peace throughout the Old Testament, peace throughout the New Testament, is about everything being as it should, undisturbed by hatred or division or suffering or sorrow or death. What sometimes in Christian tradition is called the miseries of this world. 
We see two of those miseries in John chapter 4. The first is hatred between Jews and Samaritans. In verse 9, as we're reading this story, the woman says to Jesus, How is it that you, a Jew, are asking for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, you and I may be familiar with this concept that Jews and Samaritans hated one another in the ancient world, and and that in itself shows that the peace God intends has been disturbed and disrupted by, by hatred between two ethnic groups, but between two religious groups. What we may not recognize is, is that it's even worse than that. This is a reminder of the brutality of war. The reason that the Jews and Samaritans hated one another is that back in the Old Testament, when the Assyrians conquered Samaria, they ripped out like 75, 80, 90 percent of the populace and shipped them to other nations. And then they brought people from those other nations and settled them in Samaria. This is the way the Assyrians did business. In order to keep peace, they they took conquered peoples and they uprooted them. And they turned them into refugee populations. And they said, you are going to live here from now on. So now, Jewish people living near Jerusalem get very suspicious of their new neighbors from the north. These refugees who don't know anything about our religion. And so now this kind of distortion of Old Testament worship of God begins to happen as these people who, are, who aren't familiar with it are settled into this land. And so now we have this, this one little statement, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, reminding us how broken the world is, reminding us of the brutality of war, reminding us that nations have these awful policies about uprooting people groups and, and genocide, and, and then it, 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 relate, it, it ends up destroying relationships for generations. So that centuries later, after Assyria did all of that, this woman by this well can look at Jesus and say, our people don't talk to your people, and your people don't talk to my people. What is, what's up with this conversation? There's also the reality of a distance between men and women. When the woman says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Well, the the word for Jew there is in its masculine form. So as you're reading the text, what it implies is not only do Jews and Samaritans not talk like this, Jewish men don't ask Jewish women for things like this, let alone Samaritan women. And you see that topic come up later in the text when the disciples come back. Verse 27 says, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. The peace that God made us for has been disrupted and disturbed. If you read Genesis 1, Adam and Eve are designed to be allies to one another. 
allies assisting one another in this calling of taking dominion over the world, and something has disrupted and disturbed that alliance, this relationship that's supposed to be so close and meaningful and personal. Tension gets introduced so that Jesus' own disciples are going, men and women don't interact like this in our world. So the very fact that Jesus is in Samaria talking to this woman is sending this strong signal to his disciples and to her, I am bringing peace. And the peace I bring is meant to disrupt these patterns of division that have disturbed God's good world. Jesus was sent to establish a reign of peace. It's meant to begin in this life. His actions, his miracles, his words show us that it's meant to begin in this life, but the peace that Jesus comes to establish is meant to last forever and ever into eternity. His resurrection shows us that. His resurrection overturns death. It shows us that, that Jesus has come to overturn every evil thing that disrupts peace in God's good world. This peace should begin in this life and it endures for eternity and it will be perfected at his return. Until then, we can have foretastes of that peace in our world and that's where our mission comes in. If Jesus is sent into the world to establish a peace that other people can benefit from, that's unique. He's the king. He's the one who reigns. He's the only one whose death and resurrection can cause that peace to become a reality in this broken world. But we are sent, we are sent to take the next step, to extend the benefits of Jesus' reign of peace. We don't establish the peace. We don't become the king. We can't replace Jesus. But if Jesus came to bring this kind of peace, then as those who belong to him, we're sent into the world to push back the miseries that disturb peace. In a lot of ways, that's going to give Christians common cause with our neighbors who don't recognize as, that Jesus is king. We, we recognize Jesus as king. Not everyone does. Does that mean we can't have any common cause with our neighbors? Well, no. To the extent that our neighbors desire the kind of peace that Jesus has come to establish, then we have common cause. We can love our neighbors. We can work for the good of our neighbors, our culture, our world. The path that many people take who don't recognize Jesus as king is a pretty simple one. It's suffering is bad, so let's do something about it. And Christians agree with both parts of that. We just tell a fuller story. We do believe that suffering is bad. We do believe that something should be done about it. But the story we tell is, well, it's fuller than that. Our creator father is good. He made a good world. Suffering is bad. It's so bad, in fact, that we are powerless to do anything about it, but Jesus did do something about it. 
So now because we are the people of Jesus, let's extend the benefits of the reign of the king of peace. That's a fuller story. But you see, Jesus is essential to the story that we are telling. That's why I wanted to take a moment to talk about this. Because uh, as we extend the benefits of Jesus' reign of peace, we can get the impression that Jesus really isn't necessary to the equation. If we get really involved at extending peace and mercy and justice into our world, that is a good thing. That is part of our calling. But at some point, it's possible for Christians to assume that those are the real goals, that peace and mercy and justice are the goals. And we value Jesus if he can help us meet those goals. But if there's a way to get to those goals without Jesus, then he becomes kind of optional. And that's the sort of thing that Christians can never think. We, we, we should never lose sight of this is Jesus standing in our world at this well talking to this woman. That the real healing that needs to happen in our world, the peace, the mercy, and the justice will always flow out from Him. He will never become optional for what Christians want to see happening in the world. So here are both halves of what I'm saying. Can we have common cause with others in our world who pursue peace, mercy, and justice? Absolutely we can. But if, if having that common cause leads us to a place to think that those are the real goals and Jesus is optional, then we've stepped outside our calling as his people. We have common cause because we have a king. And we're telling a story in which everything flows through and out of Him. He is the source of living water. Suffering is bad. Let's do something about it. That's true, but we're telling a fuller story. A story in which Jesus is the only one who can undo what's bad about suffering and in which anything we do is simply a reflection of what he has already done. Can we visit Father K one more time? This is a picture of him sitting at his desk in what we might call his office or study. He's looking down a staircase, this He's sitting about 10 feet away from that well. The well is on a lower level. As over centuries, the town has grown up, and so this church is built on a higher level, and you go in the basement to come to the well. And as he sits at his desk, if he were to look up and look over to his right, he'd see that well. But if you looked over to his left, he'd see a plaque on the wall. And the plaque on the wall commemorates the date on which the church was burned down and the previous priest was murdered. So much of his ministry is under the shadow of this reality 
that our world is broken, that peace has been disrupted. Members of another religious group burned the church building down and murdered the previous leader. So one of the reasons that this man feels that Jesus has sent him to this place is not simply to rebuild a physical structure, to paint pictures and make pretty stained glass, but to continue to say in this place where there has been a history of hatred between different religious and ethnic groups, Jesus is a king of peace, and he has come to do everything needed to restore us to God so that God can forgive us. Therefore, we are a people of forgiveness, and even when our neighbors destroy us and take the lives of our leaders, we can forgive them because of who Jesus is. This uh, ribbon on the left of the picture says in Greek, Christ is risen. Christ is risen. We are sent into the world to say that because Christ is risen, people can be completely known and completely loved. Even, even people who normally hate one another can learn to love one another because Christ is risen. He is the King of peace from whom living waters flow to anyone who is thirsty. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for not giving up on our world. It is broken. And that brokenness is our own fault. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for not giving up on this woman, but going out of your way to be with her, to spend time with her. Thank you for not giving up on your disciples who... Uh, so often misunderstood you and all that you were doing. Thank you for not giving up on your church. We have not been the people that you have sent us to be, and yet you promise still knowing us fully to love us completely. And those who do not deserve it, you offer living water. You offer yourself. We are astonished at your great mercy. And we can't wait to do what you send us into the world to do. We pray with thanksgiving and joy in you. Amen.